You're listening to Rounding at Rush, a Rush University Medical Center podcast that features the latest clinical advances, research, and innovations. I'm your host, Dan Dean. Joining Rounding at Rush today is Dr. Gary Steinberg, a urologist at Rush University Medical Center and a national authority in the surgical treatment of bladder cancer and continent urinary tract reconstruction. He is a recognized expert in translational bladder cancer research and has made significant contributions to the understanding of both non-muscle invasive and invasive bladder cancer. Our conversation today will focus on the treatments for non-muscle invasive and invasive bladder cancer, as well as challenges urologists may encounter when treating patients with these conditions. We'll also talk about current research that Dr. Steinberg is involved with in these areas as well. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Steinberg. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to being here. I wanted to first start by asking you about the challenges in managing high-risk, high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. But to give us a starting baseline, could you first talk about the heterogeneity of urothelial cancer? Yes, this is a, a, a great place to start off. First of all, bladder cancer is a worldwide disease, and it's a disease of aging. It's a disease of, of the elderly. Uh, the most common age diagnosis is uh, 74 years old in men and 75 to 76 years old in women. It's a very common disease, the fourth most common cancer among men in the United States, and the eighth most common cancer among women. Uh, it's something that if you don't look for uh, and you don't uh, think about, you won't uh, diagnose. But the vast majority of patients that have bladder cancer present with blood in their urine, blood that they can see in their urine. They may also have some associated changes in their urinary symptoms, urinary habits, potentially some frequent urination, some urgency, maybe some pain with urination. And all too often, it's thought to be related solely to a urinary tract infection, but that when patients are investigated more fully, such as with urine samples, urinalyses, urine cultures, and so forth, we can begin to uh, make the diagnosis of bladder cancer. Bladder cancer is, uh, as I said, it's a common disease, but we have everywhere from low-grade non-invasive bladder cancer, which is something that, that uh, does not or should not cause a loss of life expectancy, all the way to high-grade invasive cancer that can progress to invade into the muscle of the bladder wall, as well as into the lymph nodes, the lungs, the liver, and bones, and can cause significant loss of life expectancy. In general, uh, approximately 75% of the patients in the United States will present with what we call non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And of those patients, up to about a third may progress to uh, invasive bladder cancer so that it's critically important that we make the diagnosis early. And that typically includes uh, performing cystoscopy. This is where we use a telescope that looks inside a patient's bladder. We also obtain a CT scans, uh, and we look at urine for cancer cells, something we call urinary cytology. Uh, we don't necessarily have to get a CT scan. We can get an MRI scan. We can get an ultrasound. But I think a CT urogram is probably the best first choice of, an, of, a, of a test. Once we have this, uh, all of this workup uh, uh, and we detect the incidence of a bladder tumor, we will have to bring a patient to the operating room where we'll give them an anesthetic 
typically a general anesthetic, to perform something we call a transurethral resection of bladder tumor in the operating room um, to make an accurate diagnosis, as well as getting the stage, that's the depth of penetration of the tumor, as well as the grade. Is it a low grade, uh, not uh, aggressive, or high grade aggressive bladder cancer? What are the evaluation, diagnosis, and staging management strategies that you employ depending on the presentation of the disease? Yes. So as we stated, most patients will come to the attention of their physician when they have blood in their urine. And it's critically important to make sure that that blood in the urine is not from a urinary tract infection. Urinary tract infections are quite common, but typically the urinary tract infections will have a certain type of symptoms, maybe some low-grade temperature elevation, some frequency, urgency, and most importantly, the patient should have a urine culture prior to starting antibiotics. When we have urine cultures and we see no bacteria or no growth, then it's by definition not a bacterial urinary tract infection, and we need to start thinking of other things. It could be a kidney stone, it could be some a recent trauma, uh, there's a number of things, but especially in men over the age of 40, as well as in women, uh, gross blood in the urine, this is blood that we can see in the urine, a bladder tumor must be ruled out. And that can be done fairly easily with urine for cytology, looking for cancer cells in the urine, cystoscopy, where we take the telescope and look inside the bladder, and then imaging of the upper tract. We can also have blood in our urine from a kidney tumor, so it's important to get an upper tract evaluation. There also could be tumors in the collecting system of the uh, urinary system, which would be similar to the bladder cancer. Once we have this evaluation uh, and we are suspicious, we need to go to the operating room where we actually remove the tumor as best we can transurethrally with a telescope, something we call a resectoscope. And then it's important from this evaluation to sample all layers of the bladder. So the lining of the bladder, the submucosa, uh, the muscle, as well as uh, sometimes even the fat to get an accurate diagnosis and stage. Bladder cancer treatment pathways and algorithms are very heavily dependent on the initial diagnosis in terms of the grade and stage of the cancer. Non-muscle invasive, most common. Many times we employ uh, various strategies to preserve the bladder. Many times we use medications that we put inside the bladder, whether that's chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Muscle invasive bladder cancer has a much greater uh, risk of, of metastasis and loss of life expectancy, and that's a different pathway where we potentially will consider PET scanning, but certainly we want to make sure there's no evidence of metastatic disease. We may even uh, perform a DNA sequencing of the tumor to get an idea of what the uh, genetics of the tumor are. There are a number of newer things that, newer technologies that we're looking at to more fully evaluate patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. And then that will detail the type of treatment pathways, whether we're going to use chemotherapy, immunotherapy, combinations of the two, uh, surgery to remove the bladder, and or attempt bladder preservation with strategies including chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and radiation therapy. So that leads me into a couple of questions I have um, as a follow-up, beginning with BCG. 
which is the standard of care for high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and is used to prevent tumor recurrence after the resection of high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. But the challenge for clinicians is what to do when patients either have a recurrence or a, a progression of the disease. What's the current approach when this occurs? First of all, the, the most powerful immunotherapy uh, to date in any cancer is BCG, intravesical bacillus calmet guaron. Uh, and this is a very powerful form of immunotherapy that was really uh, uh, begun work with in the 1970s and 1980s. Having said that, we really don't understand completely how BCG works, but it does turn on a patient's own immune system to help prevent the cancer from, from coming back or with patients that have something we call carcinoma in situ to try to turn on the immune system to eliminate the cancer completely. Now, having said that, there are patients that uh, do not respond to BCG. And more importantly, since 2017, in the United States, we've had a shortage of BCG. There's only one manufacturer uh, uh, still making BCG in the United States that's FDA approved, called Merck, Sharp and Dome. <clears throat> Sanofi Aventis has stopped making BCG as of 2017. So we have a supply and demand issue. And so that our old uh, treatment strategies included giving six weeks of BCG, followed by giving BCG for three weeks at months three, six, 12, 18, 24, 30, and 36. We clearly don't have enough BCG to do that. And so most patients, if they do get a full course of BCG, it's a year course, which gives them 15 treatments, six, three, three, and three. But even that is in shortage. So that when BCG no longer is effective, or when we don't have BCG, we really have a clinical conundrum. Uh, because there are a limited number of agents that are FDA approved in that situation. Currently, we have three uh, agents that are approved for patients that have BCG unresponsive, meaning that they've had BCG and despite the BCG, they continue to have recurrences and or progression of their disease. We have three FDA approved drugs. One is valrubicin, which is a drug that uh, received FDA approval in 1998. I was actually the lead investigator on that trial, but I don't think there is any company making valrubicin anymore uh, because there was a concern that while it worked, it didn't work that well and that it wasn't a, a durable response. Uh, in 2020, the FDA approved Pembrolizumab, which is what we call a checkpoint inhibitor. The Merck name is Keytruda, uh, but Pembrolizumab is the generic name. And it's something we call a PD-1 inhibitor, which works by turning back, turning the immune system back on when the immune system turns itself off. We know that with BCG and with bladder cancer, there's initially a uh, immune response, something we call a T-cell response. Uh, however, after a period of time, the immune system through uh, feedback loops turns itself off. It's something we call T-cell exhaustion. And the uh, pembrolizumab helps turn that switch back on so that the immune system gets turned back on. Also approved by the FDA in 2023, is an, an oncolytic immunotherapy, an oncolytic vaccine called adstiladrin. It's made by Faring. And this is a novel gene therapy where we've taken 
a, a, a virus, a common virus called adenovirus, and added a number of genes to that virus to make it more infectious inside the bladder, specifically for bladder cancer cells, and added a gene for, for interferon alpha. Uh, interferon alpha is part of the immune system, something we call the sting gas pathway, which turns on the innate and adaptive immune system to help eliminate bladder cancer. That was FDA approved in 2023. However, there are a CMC or commercial manufacturing uh, concerns about uh, making that a vaccine. Uh, these immunotherapies are not so easy to produce on a commercial scale, and they're still having uh, issues with that. Hopefully, there will be a Stiladrin available for patients sometime at the end of 2023 or early 2024. And then last but not least, urologists who have started using intravascular chemotherapy again. Now, intravascular chemotherapy within the bladder was kind of abandoned in the past. Uh, it's kind of being re uh, reintroduced, especially because of the BCG shortage. We're using combinations of chemotherapy agents. One is gemcitabine, the other is docetaxel, uh, and, and that we think that that combination may be uh, helpful in patients who uh, do not respond to BCG. Having said that, there are no randomized prospective trials looking at those two agents. It's old drugs. I believe that the, that the reason that chemotherapy in general doesn't work inside the bladder is because uh, the medication's in the bladder and then we urinate it out uh, an hour or two later. Uh, not much is topically absorbed within the bladder. So I think that, that newer drugs Immunotherapy approaches, I think, are preferable. And again, we've got a number of clinical trials which we're going to uh, discuss. Uh, other things that that pa patients and 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 uh, uh, radiation oncologists have spoken about is potentially using radiation in patients who uh, do not respond to BCG. One thing that we have to remember and understand is that we do not have great biomarkers uh, that are going to help predict whether a patient's bladder cancer not only recurs, but progresses to muscle invasion or beyond. One of the strongest biomarkers that we have is how well a patient responds to BCG and how long they respond to BCG. We know that if you do not respond to BCG, you are at significant increased risk that your bladder cancer will come back, but more importantly, progress to muscle invasion and beyond. So we have to be very careful when we find patients that have high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that do not respond to BCG because we really want to be most effective in their treatment. Uh, and we do want to preserve their bladder if we can. However, the standard of care for patients who have high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that does not respond to BCG that's associated with the highest likelihood of cure is bladder removal albeit with all of the caveats of the uh, potential complications from bladder removal. One area I wanted to ask you about, which can be challenging for many urologists, is how to treat patients with intermediate risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. How do you first determine a patient's risk category and then determine an appropriate treatment course? You know, I think that this is an excellent question, and this is something that really uh, bedevils the patients. Uh, the intermediate risk bladder cancer patient population is, I think, an unmet need. When we look at 
non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, we try to separate patients into low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. The low risk patients are the patients with one small tumor less than three centimeters in size, low grade, non-invasive. Ultimately, pretty much everyone with low risk disease, or at least 50 to 70% of those patients, ultimately become intermediate risk in that these are patients that have had recurrent low-grade non-invasive disease, or they've had multiple tumors in the bladder that are low-grade non-invasive disease, or that uh, they've got a low-grade non-invasive disease that's larger, greater than three centimeters. And there's also a category in the U.S., where patients have a, a tumor that's non-invasive, it's high grade, but it's less than three centimeters. So it's something we call TA high grade. That is all in the intermediate risk population. In the high risk population is anybody with high grade carcinoma in situ, recurrent TA high grade, uh, TA high grade greater than three centimeters, multifocal TA high grade, or something we call T1, which is invading into the lamina propria or submucosa, but not into the muscle. However, in Europe, in the European Association of Urology Guidelines, any high-grade disease is considered high risk. When we talk about risk, we're talking about risk of recurrence or risk of progression. So we really have to separate the two. In general, most patients with intermediate risk uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer even the TA high grade, have a low risk of progression. And I think that that, that risk is probably at most 5% lifetime, but the risk of recurrence is quite high. And that our standard form of treatment is really inadequate and in that the way we treat these patients is they have a new tumor, we bring them to the operating room, we give them an anesthetic, we cut the tumor out and, and rinse and repeat. You know, we do this multiple times and it really is uncomfortable for the patients. They have catheters, there's risks of, of bleeding from the operation, re-bleeding, uh, having to have a catheter uh, replaced. And more importantly, we haven't done a very good job of uh, reducing uh, the risk of the recurrence and or changing the natural history of the bladder cancer. Now, uh, in the past, we were using BCG. Because of the BCG, we're not using it any longer. And quite frankly, I don't think BCG is all that effective for low-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So we've used a, a number of different intravescal chemotherapeutic agents. Again, nothing that's really worked. Even these combinations hasn't really worked. One of the things that we're seeing, which is new, which is these are medications that are, again, chemotherapeutic agents, but we're changing the way we deliver them. So there is something called UGN-102. It's a clinical trial. Uh, they've completed two randomized trials, uh, the ATLAS trial, the Envision trial. They had a, a phase two, a single arm trial. And this is using a drug called mitomycin C, which is an intravascular chemotherapeutic agent, as well as a systemic agent that we've been using for a number of years. And the difference about this new delivery system is that in room temperature, it's a liquid. In body temperature, it becomes a gel. So it's kind of like a reverse jello. And in body temperature, so the drug sticks to the wall of the bladder and uh, uh, it stays stuck to the wall of the bladder for up to five hours and then it's dissolved. But we think that that improves the delivery of the drug to the bladder lining cells. And that more importantly, we're, we're looking at this drug 
uh, not to uh, prevent recurrences so much, but as to replace the surgery as that the drug will ablate or kill all the cancer cells so that you can avoid taking patients to the operating room. <clears throat> now, uh, again, we have to wait for longer term data. Uh, there are others that are using the concept of, of giving chemotherapy in the bladder without the gel to see if it also is a chemoablation. One of the things that, that we can do is we can chemoablate with these drugs. And then in the office, we can, with a flexible um, uh, telescope, cystoscope, we can rather than have to take them to the operating room, we can cauterize these tumors in the clinic, in the office, to uh, help prevent the patients from needing to go to the operating room. One of the things we know with these types of tumors is that many of them have a particular mutation, something we call FGFR3 or fibroblast growth factor receptor 3, uh, mutations that is uh, we see in in probably at least 60 if not 80 percent of patients with intermediate risk bladder cancer we've got drugs that are fda approved for metastatic bladder cancer that have fgfr3 alterations and we've begun to introduce these into the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients and i think it's something we'll talk about a little bit later but the goal is is not only chemotherapy, but targeted chemotherapy to the specific mutations we see in this type of bladder cancer to try to move the field forward. There's nothing worse than having a patient come into the clinic. They have the cystoscopy. Today we have uh, a big TV screen so the urologist can see the, the bladder as well as the patient. And every time they see a new tumor, their heart drops. It becomes quite distressing for them. We clearly need better therapies to help decrease their trips to the operating room, decrease the, the financial toxicity of these bladder tumors, as well as to try to um, prolong disease-free intervals. And I think some of these newer approaches. Another delivery system is something we call the, the, the TAR200 pretzel. And this is a little tube that we put inside the bladder that has chemotherapy in it. And it delivers the chemotherapy slowly over a four-week period, 28-day period. And that the continuous low-dose chemotherapy, we think, is a, a better way to absorb the drug, a better way to uh, eliminate the tumors. And so this is also being looked at in the uh, intermediate risk patient population. And then last but not least, we're also looking at oncolytic immunotherapy with uh, adstiladrin or CG0070, which is credostimogene. These are immunotherapeutic agents uh, that are going to begin clinical trials in patients that have non-muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer intermediate risk. Because I ultimately think, I ultimately think that the only way we're going to change the natural history of these patients' bladder cancers and decrease the recurrences is by changing the natural history of the disease with an immunotherapy that will turn on the immune system and provide immune surveillance that any time there's a recurrence that the immune system will uh, take care of the tumor uh, and, and, and decrease the need for uh, further intervention. For patients who have muscle-invasive bladder cancer, there are two general approaches to treatment. Cystectomy, sometimes with neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy, or bladder-conserving surgery, followed by radiation and perhaps chemotherapy. Can you talk about the pros and cons of each? And can you also talk about when it's best to implement each? You know, I think that for the longest period of time, uh, the 
the urologic community was avoiding looking at uh, non-surgical treatment for muscle invasive bladder cancer. A radiation therapy for muscle invasive bladder cancer has been around for a while, but we've never been able to move the ball forward and do randomized trials and to uh, investigate it in a, in a thoughtful fashion. Having said that, that this has now uh, uh, been moving quite rapidly. I think the patients desperately want options for bladder preservation. Having said that, when we look at patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer in the United States, many patients, at least 50 plus percent of patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer, choose not to get any therapy because of the concerns about the morbidity and the complications and potential mortality from bladder cancer treatment. We know that if you've got muscle invasive bladder cancer and do not get any definitive treatment, your likelihood of being dead from bladder cancer uh, in two years is at least 80%. So we've got a tremendous number of patients that have muscle invasive bladder cancer that are opting out of any treatment because of the concerns about losing their bladder and so forth. So we clearly need to have better bladder preservation approaches. With bladder preservation, we, we have better imaging today than we ever did. Uh, our radiation therapy is better. Uh, and we're trying to target the patient's tumors better with radiation. Having said that, we really need to uh, be very careful that we're treating the correct patient. So that if you've got a patient with large tumors uh, in the bladder, that you've got blockage of one of the kidneys, that you've got what we call carcinoma in situ throughout the bladder, uh, that you've got, it looks like, extravascular a disease outside of the bladder. Radiation therapy is not optimal. Yes, you can be treated with radiation therapy, but the likelihood of success is significantly diminished. Also, uh, if you've got what we call variant histologies or bladder cancer that has different cell types, not the usual what we call urothelial cell cancer. Yes, you can treat with radiation, but with increased risk that you're not going to be successful. We also find that it's helpful to give chemotherapy with the radiation, something we call radiation sensitization, and that even uh, today we're also looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy, so this is chemotherapy before radiation, and also looking at different strategies adding immunotherapy, such as checkpoint inhibitors, to the treatment regimen, checkpoint inhibitors, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, radiation, maximal uh, transurethral resection of the tumor before we start all these things. So in a very careful, a thoughtful clinical arena with radiation oncologists involved, medical oncologists and urologists, and the patient with the right tumor, we certainly can preserve the bladder in a number of patients. Having said that, when we look at uh, trying to compare radiation versus surgery, uh, the surgical patients typically have a, a better outcome in terms of life expectancy. However, a lot of that is, may, may be due to patient selection uh, and that the surgeons are able to choose patients that will do better, healthier patients, less uh, medical comorbidities, and so forth. Radical cystectomy, removal of the bladder, uh, is a major operation and is best performed in centers that do a lot of radical cystectomies and by surgeons that do a lot of them. Uh, there are a, a significant number of potential complications. 
The readmission rate is high. Uh, unfortunately, in the United States, about 90% of patients that have their bladder removed get what we call an incontinent urinary diversion, something in the ileal conduit. In my career, while I've performed over 2,500 radical cystectomies, at least 40 to 50% of my patients get what we call a continent urinary diversion, where they have volitional control over their urination, uh, either with something we call a neobladder or an Indiana pouch. Having said that, the neobladder, while it's good, is not as good as a native bladder. Having also said that, there are some patients with such uh, significant lower urinary tract symptoms, uh, removing their bladder actually can improve their quality of life without a dysfunctional bladder with cancer in it as, as well. So I think that overall, um, it requires uh, a careful consideration of the patient's needs, uh, the patient's health, their life expectancy, the location of the tumor, the type of tumors, if they've uh, had uh, non-muscle invasive that's progressed to muscle invasive, all of these criteria need to be considered very carefully. The other thing that we're doing in the last five to 10 years is we're beginning to uh, get next-generation sequencing of patients' uh, bladder cancers. And by looking at what we call RNA sequence uh, signatures, we're able to identify which patients are most likely to respond to chemotherapy or, or immunotherapy. We know that there are patients that have particular uh, genetic abnormalities in their tumor, uh, something we call DNA re repair response genes, DDR genes, ATM, STAT, ERCC2. These are particular mutations. And if you have those particular mutations, you're more likely to respond to chemotherapy. And after you've had your chemotherapy, we look inside the bladder, we biopsy the bladder, we re-image with CAT scan or MRI scan. And so that there are some patients that have a complete response from the chemotherapy that in clinical trials, we're actually observing those patients. We're not giving them any additional surgery or radiation and following them with their intact bladder. Uh, again, this there is a fair amount of overlap, and this needs to be done very carefully, uh, but that the future may hold that by looking at a particular genetic signature of your tumor will predict your response to surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and that will be able to more personalize your treatments. It's critically important that we find better therapies for those groups of patients that choose not to get anything because uh, clearly it is a life-threatening disease in that uh, situation. And I think that it's never been a good time to have bladder cancer. However, now's the best time ever because we've had multiple drugs that have been FDA approved for patients with bladder cancer. Uh, something we didn't even talk about yet are the antibody drug conjugates, such as infortinavidotin or sasituzumab govotecan. Those are mouthfuls, but these are drugs that will particularly target a cancer and deliver a payload of chemotherapy just to the cancer cells to eliminate some of the side effects uh, that we get when we just kind of broadly give chemotherapy to Gagin. So we've made tremendous progress. One follow-up question I had is for patients you treat uh, with bladder-conserving surgery, how are you employing the use of immunotherapy for those patients? That's an excellent question. And I just came back from the uh, International Bladder Cancer Group uh, retreat. 
uh, earlier in the month, uh, in, in, that was in Houston, earlier in August, we had our Bladder Cancer Think Tank meeting sponsored by the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network in Washington, D.C. It's a group of urologists, scientists, um, uh, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, where we get together and we really are looking to move the field forward. There's a lot of information about chemotherapy or radiation therapy or anything that we do uh, creating uh, what we call immune cell death. So we kill cancer cells and then these cancer cells uh, have what we call neoantigens. And these are the parts of the cancer cell that the immune system can recognize. We're trying to enhance the uh, neoantigens that have the most immunogenic response to turn on the immune system the most. But we recognize that the immune system has a lot of feedback loops to prevent autoimmunity or to prevent our immune system from attacking our normal cells. And so this is what happens is that, that uh, we induce checkpoint inhibitors to turn off the immune system. Now we know that, and again, we're still trying to figure out the sequencing and the timing of, of when to use the checkpoint inhibitors, but we know that if we can get those patients where the, the immune system has been turned off and then turn it back on by giving these drugs such as pembrolizumab, dervalumab, atezolizumab, nivolumab, uh, all these MABs that are, that are checkpoint inhibitors, uh, we find that um, we can actually turn the immune system on and improve disease-free survival and even survival of patients being treated. So, um, and again, we're not doing this in a vacuum. There are a lot of people looking at radiation therapy, chemotherapy, and immunotherapy in lung cancer, melanoma, colon cancer. So it, the whole field is trying to figure out how to optimize our treatments and optimize our immune system. The big issue is that, that many of these tumors have a lot of immunosuppressive factors that interfere with the, the, the immune cells, the T cells getting into the tumor. And so that's also uh, strategies we're working on. We're working on personalized cancer vaccines. We're looking at injecting uh, uh, vaccines into tumors and then radiating or then giving checkpoint inhibitors. So there's a lot of different uh, strategies going on. There's a lot of new agents that are uh, helping the, the immune cells to get into the cancer, a lot of uh, things to help uh, change the, the tumor microenvironment from a desert, an immune desert, into immune-rich with T-cells traffic. It's a very exciting time. Uh, to be to be working on this, and and uh, we're making great progress. It's still going to take some time, but the concept with radiation therapy is that we know that radiation kills cells, but then it becomes immunosuppressive. And one of the reasons we think it becomes immunosuppressive is that it induces PDL1 and it induces interferon gamma, which turns off the immune system, and then we want to turn it back on with the checkpoints. We're still not exactly sure of the timing and the sequencing, but we think that it's going to um, make a difference soon. So as we talked about, I want to make sure that we spend a little bit of time talking about the current promising research that you're involved with. Could we first talk about the BOND3 and the CORE 1 and 2 trials for the treatment of BCG non-responsive non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? So uh, full disclosure, I am consultant for uh, CG Oncology and, and actually I have, I have uh, stock options. 
However, uh, having said that, um, uh, this is one of the most exciting avenues of immunotherapy for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer in quite some time. CG0070 or cretostimogene is a, a common adenovirus that has some genes put in. So similar to adstilogen, but this has got some different genes. It's got a GMCSF, granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor gene, which we know turns on the adaptive immune system and uh, it helps uh, T cells and antigen presenting cells to the T cells to turn on the T cells to fight cancer. But it also has genes at the E1A, E2F promoter region, which makes this uh, oncolytic immunotherapy cancer specific. We know that about 80% um, of patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer have defects in the RB pathway. And so the, the genes at the E1A, E2F are for those tumors specifically. So it's what we call a replication selective immunotherapy. It turns on this immunotherapy, kills the tumor cells selectively, creates what we call this immune cell death, recruits immuno, immune cells, the GMCSF recruit immune cells. So we kill cancer cells by the virus killing cells, as well as by turning on the immune system. And uh, we've been working with this oncolytic immunotherapy for a number of years. We've finished the BOND-3 trial, the BOND-2 trial, of which I was the uh, uh, principal investigator on. We, we, we have some good results, but we've seen even better results with the uh, CORE 1 trial, which is taking these oncolytic immunotherapies, credostimogene, and adding pembrolizumab, a checkpoint inhibitor. So where we were seeing complete response rates in the 50%, 60% range, now we're seeing complete response rates in, in the 85% range. The duration of response at 12 months with, with uh, credostimogene alone was around 25%. The combination, we're seeing 68% uh, durable response at 12 months. Again, early data, small numbers, but it's a really exciting uh, concept and something that uh, we, this is the, the way the science is supposed to work. And when it does work, it's, it's incredibly uh, exciting and hopeful. Uh, I think that we're, uh, we're looking at using this oncolytic immunotherapy, uh, potentially in patients with muscle invasive disease, looking to use it in patients with intermediate risk, because we really think that this gene construct will alter the natural history of the cancers, create what we call T-cell memory to help prevent the cancers from coming back. So I'm very excited about that. Other trials that I've been involved with is with a company called Engine Bio. Again, disclosing, I'm a consultant for them uh, and I have stock options. Uh, but this is a novel DNA delivery system what we've seen with the COVID uh, pandemic is that we required an mRNA delivery system by Moderna or Pfizer to carry and create a vaccine that then releases B cells to, take, to kill a virus. We're using the same technology uh, with, with the N-gene. We're using DNA delivery rather than RNA, although in our uh, construct that we're using now called EG70, we've got two RNA plasmids for RIG1, 
which is a very potent stimulator of the innate immune system. And we've got a DNA plasmid delivery of IL-12, which is also a very potent uh, uh, immune stimulator for the adaptive immune system. And we see by this construct that we increase interferon gamma, we increase something called CXCL10, which is also a marker of the adaptive and innate immune system. It's also a marker of bringing uh, immune cells into the tumor. Uh, we're seeing uh, decreases in, in what we call T-regulatory cells and these myeloid-derived suppressor cells, which depress the immune system. And so we're using this drug in early trials. We've treated 22 patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, we find that it's well-tolerated. Uh, we're seeing some impressive efficacy results. And uh, an ongoing phase two trial uh, is, is begun to see if we can treat more patients to get a better idea of how uh, effective this is. The mechanism of action is essentially what BCG does, although it's uh, easier to make, it's more scientific, it's modern, and ultimately maybe EG70 will help uh, replace BCG, which would be, a, I think, a, a move forward. I'm also involved with using ertafitinib. Ertafitinib is a medication which blocks FGFR3 uh, mutations. It's FDA approved in uh, metastatic bladder cancer. We're looking at it in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And more importantly, the ertafitinib uh, drug is a pill, but it does have some side effects. Uh, Janssen is trying to put their ertafitinib into their pretzel uh, that we put in the bladder that's solely released. Uh, we do have some data uh, which uh, shows that it appears to be quite effective uh, and decreased toxicity in the intermediate risk population, uh, potentially will expand that to patients with high risk disease, again, that have the FGFR3 uh, mutations. So we've got multiple new agents, multiple mechanisms of action. Uh, there's plenty of space in the field for more than one drug, more than one company, uh, uh, because, you know, again, as we, as we started out, bladder cancer is very heterogeneous, and we're gonna need more ways and more targets to use to get rid of this uh, uh, devastating disease once and for all. And, and, and I'm very hopeful that we're making a lot of progress. Well, Dr. Steinberg, thanks so much for a great conversation today. Thank you, I enjoyed it.